внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. With Russia massing tens of thousands of troops on the Ukrainian border, the threat of invasion appears increasingly real. In a video call this week with Vladimir Putin, U.S. President Joe Biden reiterated Washington's support for Ukraine, rebuffed Putin's demands that NATO membership will be taken off the table, and threatened severe economic sanctions and possibly other measures if Russia invades. With war drums beating, how does the crisis look from inside Ukraine? And how prepared are the Ukrainian armed forces to resist a full-scale Russian invasion? Stick around to hear from our guests who know a thing or two about that. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the beautiful Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, is former Ukrainian Defense Minister Andrei Zagorodnyuk, Director of the Center for Defense Strategies. Welcome to The Vertical, Andrei. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And also joining us from the magical Ukrainian city of Odessa, a place where I spent one of the happiest years of my life back in the early 90s, is my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Meshikov National U University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Welcome back to the podcast, Volodymyr. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks always. for coming. Thanks for coming on such short notice. So, so Ukraine's basically been living with war since 2014 for nearly eight years now. But what we may be facing at the moment is something qualitatively different, a full-scale Russian invasion. U.S. intelligence said this could happen early next year and that Russia has plans on the books to mass an invasion force of up to 175,000 troops. To get us started, I wanted first just to get both of your thoughts on the atmosphere in your respective cities at the moment and across across the country. What is the mood of the Ukrainian people at this at, the, at this very, very tense moment, Andrei? Uh, hello, and thank you for inviting me here. Uh, so we need to say that uh, the mood of, is different with different uh, parts of the society. So uh, among the military and defense-related people, or those who are, have volunteered for the army for like all these eight years, uh, starting from revolution of Maidan, ending up like until now, uh, the mood with them is, is kind of concerned, but they are Essentially, they've been living psychologically with the war for all this period of time. And for many of them, this is something which they think about every day. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people uh, like that. Uh, and uh, those people are um, those people are just saying, OK, we, you know, there's nothing, nothing shocking to them in this. Mm -hmm. And uh, they just they're just ready to take uh, to, to see what's going to happen and, 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 and uh, take their part. Uh, the parts of the society which never have lived with the uh, war or have have been living like a civilian life without any sort of relationship to a, to a war for the last for the last several years obviously are concerned. But um, but again, 
uh, again, Ukrainians are hearing about the war every day from the news. Every day something happens. Every day there is something. So we have a bit of immune system, at least to those who I'm like looking at, and, and at least those who I talk to, and uh, and so on. There is a bit of immune system to these issues. So there's no there's no such a shock. Um, however, there are investors. There are people who are putting money in the Ukrainian businesses. There are owners of the businesses. There are uh, there are people who are deciding whether they should uh, buy something or they shouldn't should hold money and uh, you know, and those face tough decisions. And I was approached by, for example, uh, several a um, hundred plus investment banks which call which have the Ukrainian bonds, and they were worried. And we had a special phone call with them uh, where I had to explain the strategic picture because many of them don't understand. Many of them don't understand things we're going to discuss today. And um, for them, it's kind of tough because all they're hearing is that there is a chance of a, of a full-scale invasion from uh, from Russian army. That's all. That's it. That's literally right. all. And uh, if you put it th this way to the person who has uh, nothing to do with the politics or nothing to do with everything, I mean, uh, these guys are really concerned. Uh, same thing. I, I was approached by one farmer on some charity event like uh, two days ago who was asking whether he should buy new seeds. You know, and whether he should start planting new crops next season, and so on. So those guys, like who have like facing some vital decisions, they are in a, like a sort of a hardest, uh, you know, situation. But uh, yeah, so it's it's it, it depends who we're talking about. Yeah, no, this is it's something that always struck me going to Ukraine over over. I, I used to go before the pandemic a couple times a year, um, and you would just you you you'd be sitting in a cafe in Kiev and you'd never know a war was going on. It was almost nonchalant about it. Um, I had the same feeling in Odessa, and I was wondering now with the threat of a full-scale Russian invasion, which is a qualitatively different thing than the low-intensity war we've had in the Donbass for the past eight years, that, that's got to get people nervous. And I'm, I mean, I, I last week I had Michael Kaufman, the military analyst, on, on the program, and we talked about, you know, what possibly the Russian plan could be. Is it just to kind of reignite things in the Donbass or escalate things in the Donbass? Is it to push north to, to, to Kharkiv and south to Mariupol and possibly even Odessa? And, and Or the other third option is go all the way to the Dnieper River. Um, and then you're talking about something that we have not seen in Europe for a very, very, very yeah. long time. And I was wondering just the psychological impact on the Ukrainian people about that. People are in restaurants and cafes. I just yeah. had uh, and people still made so there's no panic. Uh, at the moment in Ukrainian society. That's what I haven't seen. It's not like Ukraine is panicking. Uh, right. Yeah, it's just my personal opinion from uh, observations which we make. So, uh, we Same have, thing uh, here. We yeah, yeah Volodya, I wanted to get the picture in Odessa, you know, a city I know very well and, 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 and quite frankly adore. Um, what, is, what, is the, uh, what is the feeling in Odessa? I mean, it's a, you know, we've had this conversation in the past. It's, it's historically predominantly a Russian-speaking city, but a city whose loyalties to Kiev seem pretty firm from, from, from my observations. How are, what's, what's the mood there in Odessa? Well, the mood is uh, like in Kiev as well. Uh, so, I mean, it's definitely not a hysteria or some kind of panic mood. Uh, at the same time, a little tense. I mean, maybe a little more than we've seen before. Uh, even though the this aggregations of Russian troops, we've seen it before. We've seen this movie before. I mean, uh, something new to us. And that's probably one of the explanations why initially Ukrainian leadership wasn't paying too much attention and couldn't even understand why Washington would be ringing the alarm bell on all of this, uh, because we, we've seen this already. We lived through this many waves of trying uh, Russia trying to intimidate us, 
to blackmail us. And that's why initially people said, you know what, uh, what's new here? And, but then eventually, apparently, Americans have shared some intelligence uh, information mm -hmm. with us. And people finally started paying attention because actually the sheer number of people that Russia is trying to congregate on the other side of the border is actually unprecedented. So that's why people started paying attention. And then, of course, it's not nice when you see it in the build, uh, you know, this kind of plan. Uh, you know, of course, if Russia is trying to intimidate us, it would make sure that someone would inter inter intercept that kind of plan and you would see all these little arrows including Odessa being part of the stage right. one operation. So that got people's attention, obviously, and people were nervous because no one can be actually, you know, just outright discarding this uh, uh, theoretical possibility that this might be the, actually their plan. But at the same time, we understand that they've been uh, primarily focusing before that, they've been primarily focusing on blackmailing and, mm -hmm. and uh, applying pressure on Kiev and sending signals to Washington and other capitals and that's what they're probably doing now, but no one really knows. So, I mean, I'm definitely against this kind of a careless attitude that some people also express here in, in, in Ukraine when they're saying, oh, that's definitely just uh, just a nonsense. It's not going to be a full-scale invasion, because uh, how can you say so? Because in 2008, we said it's impossible for, to imagine Russian troops going anywhere outside of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and they did go almost to Dissi. Yes. And then some people said, okay, that's Georgia. It's never going to be happening, you know, that Russia will be using military against Ukraine. And then they did, and they're yes. still doing it. So, I mean, nothing is impossible, but we, we're trying to decipher what's going on, and Washington does as well. Yeah, and we we under we underestimate Putin's Putin's willingness to to take steps like this at our own risk. I'll tell you the way this looks from Washington, and I'm every day I'm talking to to different people who track this. This looks qualitatively different from everything else we've seen in the past. This does not look like a psyop to, to, to from, from from our vantage point here. This looks like the the number of troops, the hardware, and everything they're moving to the border there. Strike look looks to me like the real deal. It doesn't look like a psyop. I think what happened in the spring was a dress rehearsal for this. Um, and they they pulled this trick in the spring. They got a summit with Biden. That was kind of just testing the waters. I think this I think this intends to go even further. And the other thing we have to bear in mind is the threat is not just from the Russian border for the to the northeast and the east. It's also from the Belarusian border to the north. Um, and from occupied Crimea from the south. So in a lot of ways, Ukraine's surrounded and, and, and Lukashenko is militarizing his border with Ukraine at the moment. Um, so this is this this is this is really frightening. What I wanted to do is to just step back a bit because this didn't this this didn't start now. I mean, I saw the seeds of this planted when it became clear to Putin that that Zelensky wasn't going to be the pushover that he thought he was going to be. Um, that Zelensky has very skillfully um, navigated the kind of post-Minsk II environment, um, this environment where Russia was trying to force this interpretation of Minsk II on Ukraine, this interpretation that, me, that would say, well, we're not going to give you back control of the border. We're not going to disarm the militants um, in, 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 um, in, in the occupied areas of the Donbass, but you have to decentralize and take them back into Ukraine and hold elections under these circumstances. Zelensky, like his predecessor, Poroshenko, has I actually think I think played this very, very well and resisted Russia's efforts to force this. You can't really force Ukraine to take back territory on terms it doesn't want to take. That's a, it's easier to take territory than force a country to take it back. And I think two successive Ukrainian presidents have played this very skillfully. But actually, Zelensky has gone somewhere that Poroshenko never went, and that is really 
cutting off these vectors of malign influence for Russia inside Ukraine. I'm talking about the shutting down of the pro Kremlin TV channels and the 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 um, the the case against uh, against Viktor Medvedchuk for high treason and placing him under house arrest. I, what my interpretation of this um, is that Putin effectively saw Ukraine just irrevocably slipping out of out of his uh, out of his con- control and he feels like he needs to do something drastic to stop that um first of all is that your interpretation and how would you assess president zelensky's handling of this i want to get from both of you Volodya, you want to go first okay well i think uh, first of all to what you just said about how it looks like a preparation for full-scale invasion uh, if you want to convince someone that you're preparing full-scale invasion that's what you do i mean you, yeah. make, you should make it believable I mean, it should be really convincing. I mean, you put up a good show. But I didn't believe that, it. In that, the that being said, I say it could, it could not be a show. Also, I mean, he can might theoretically make this decision to do a full-scale invasion. But if you're just trying to blackmail someone, uh, you just make sure that someone uh, is believing your threat, and uh, that's why it make, should be believable. He stepped up, uh, you know, the, the, the his game since uh, Putin. I mean, since the last uh, yeah. congregations of Russian troops. Now, uh, also, uh, yes, you're right, uh, we've been trying to play a certain game, including with Minsk agreements, but uh, there is a certain limit. Uh, we still have a weak hand vis-a-vis Russia, obviously. It's an asymmetric conflict, whether we like it or not. I mean, it, it changed for better for Ukraine, absolutely, since 2014, because of our own effort and because of assistance of our friends in the West and elsewhere. Uh, but still, it's definitely an asymmetric conflict. And uh, when they want to hurt us, they can do that. I mean, obviously, are Russians, and they might uh, want to be doing this. And it, as you said, it's very interesting because I think he probably d- doesn't like the status quo anymore. And that's kind of surprising to me because for a number of years, I thought that Russia is satisfied. You know, Crimea is de facto under their control. Donbass makes Ukraine bleed in many ways, you know, militarily, uh, you know, financially, like uh, Andrei said, investors are not investing enough money to Ukraine because it's a country in the war. So it was kind of going their, their way, uh, Russians, I mean, and then all of a sudden he's not satisfied and you can feel that he's irritated. And I wonder what triggered him. Was it really Russian, you know, invasion, I mean, uh, the, the trainings in the Black Sea? Was it maybe those strategic bombers flying here? Was it indeed imp- increased uh, NATO training programs in Ukraine? Uh, what was it? I, I'm not, I couldn't point a finger at it. I mean, couldn't point a finger at it. I mean, I, but he was definitely triggered by something and he was feeling that he's kind of getting away from him and that's why he needs to do something. Well, I think he was triggered by the overall situation. I mean, you have to remember Putin's like uh, infamous article about Ukraine that was published um, earlier this year um, in the spring. Um, I, I I, mean, that article, in addition to being filled with like just ridiculous historical inaccuracies that um, one of your first year students at Meshikov National University could point out the flaws in Volodya, um, that article was a signaling of Putin's thinking. I mean, he really believes his own hype. He really believes that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. He really believes that Ukraine is just this rogue part of Russia that has to be brought back into the fold. I, he, he doesn't I mean, for lack of a better term, he doesn't understand Ukraine. Um, he, he confuses the, what somebody's first language is with what their with their political loyalties are. Um, that 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 much has been clear throughout this. And anybody that spent any time in the Russian speaking parts of Ukraine would be able to dispel that myth in an instant. Um, it was clear to me from my, my, my time in Odessa. But I think it goes back to that. I think in general, he feels Ukraine slipping away. I don't think it was any one thing. I think it was a combination of a bunch of 
different factors that painted this picture that he didn't like and now he wants to he wants to shake it up and this is this is the the only card he really has to play the irony of this is this the the fact that Russia feels like it needs to invade right now is a testament to the success of Ukraine's policy in dealing with this and the success to the, the the success of the the, the western assistance to ukraine I, I would like to see a lot more assistance than we're giving but but the, it is still a testament to that success andre what are your thoughts on this all right so let me we obviously studied that and we looked at that for for some time and here's the situation so uh uh putin wasn't happy with the status quo <clears throat> Uh, there was a, a long period of time during which, during end of Poroshenko rule, he couldn't do much about that. So he wasn't happy, but there was not much he could do. And except like creating uh, this uh, relatively minor accident in the in the Black Sea incident mm-hmm. in the Black Sea, which um, minor for him, it was a big deal for Ukraine. Ukraine yeah. announced uh, like a, you mean the seizing of the ships from the Sea of yeah. from the Sea of Azov, yeah. Uh, which ended up with a very severe consequences for Ukrainian shipment because they practically blocked uh, CFSO for Ukraine. And so, so uh, minor from a, uh, from a monetary perspective of the of the value of the ships in in terms of uh, uh, um, in terms of the Russian forces or some large any large maritime force, it was huge for Ukraine from an image perspective, from a trading perspective, from just generally overall. Cuts off Mariupol and Berdyansk. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, so, so it was a, a very uh, serious move at the end. Uh, but generally speaking, everything was kind of a going uh, more without too much change. So there was a subs- uh, significant firing. There was a there was a constant uh, constant battles in the east. Uh, we received um, we received information about casualties almost every second day, and so on and so on. So that was ga- going, and obviously that was beating Ukraine out. Plus, uh, there was a constant in ha- unhappiness of many Ukrainians with Poroshenko rule, for various reasons. And uh, certainly Putin was expecting him to lose in the elections and then uh, have a deal with a newcomer. So for that period of time, he was just apparently waiting, you know. Then when Zelensky came, he had lots of hopes to strike a deal with Zelensky, on, obviously on terms of Putin. And there were lots of negotiations happening, uh, starting from 2019 to 2020, uh, while they were preparing for the so-called Normandy summit in Paris, uh, December 9th, 2019, and that didn't work out. So they 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 prepared a package of demands which they wanted to push through during Normandy summit, and it didn't happen. They were quite unhappy about Normandy, and uh, when they returned, they uh, uh, then they started to try to use Minsk process to do the same, and it was uh, quite clear by the end uh, by the middle of 2020. That they can't, they cannot, uh, they cannot abuse that process as well. So they cannot put things there which they wanted. And what they wanted was very clear. They wanted elections in Donbass as it is right now, yeah. which essentially means legalizing, legitimizing exactly. uh, current uh, warlords, which are war, war, warlords, which are there. And that's the first thing. Secondly, they wanted the uh, recognition of them as the independent party, uh, which obviously they aren't. And uh, uh, party negotiations and so on. So, like, uh, have a political kind of a individuality, a political independence. Uh, perceived, obviously, they 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 don't have any. But that's what they wanted. That didn't work out. None of this worked out. So, so they were quite unhappy. And then they were thinking, and they were thinking for about half a year. So, second half of 2020, there was what we called in, uh, like a like aggressive stalemate or 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 hostile equilibrium or something like this. So, uh, nothing was happening because every party was like thinking what they can do. 
And then suddenly Ukraine started to move. And that movement was, uh, well, first of all, in June, there was this uh, AOP, an Enhanced Opportunity Partner with NATO, which really pissed off uh, Russians because that's a significant step in the, uh, in the NATO direction. And what is more importantly, all countries, all 30 countries voted for that, which means that there is a consensus. Yep. That's a huge deal in NATO is to reach the consensus, and it was reached. Secondly, um, secondly, they started to attack uh, through uh, NSDC. Uh, they started to attack the uh, Medvedchuk and Medvedchuk channels and so on and so on. They put lots of hopes on these guys because these guys were creating that new electorate base, you know, elective mm -hmm. base for the, for, the, for the future politicians, which would come and, uh, and be pro-Russian. And uh, so pro-Russian uh, sentiments in Ukrainian public went, went down quite strongly after that. And so on. So, so, the, and and there were a number of other things which, uh, which they were very much concerned about. Uh, then they, then the Minsk process itself stuck completely, like totally. Nothing was happening there, and they were obviously uh, they they became very aggressive, even in verbiage. Like in, for example, in Berlin summit, Kozak was extremely abusive to Ukrainian uh, delegation. So he was like. Uh, sort of state make derogatory statements and like said like uh, describing the process, you know, and so on. So they stopped even being uh, polite because they were quite polite originally, you know, in with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So they they played that friendly card uh, uh, mm -hmm. in the beginning. They stopped playing that friendly card, and then um, and then I think uh, then they they tried to with this provocation in uh, with a build up in uh, in April. And they saw what happened, and what they received in exchange was a meeting with Biden. And what they received was uh, Nord Stream 2 deal. Mm -hmm. That was a big issue. So uh, I think there is a direct chain of consequences. Uh, sorry, the, the cause and effect uh, mm -hmm. between Nord Stream 2 and this current buildup. Because they have seen that they can actually get something out of U.S. administration. So finally, the problem which they also received was the, uh, Norman, uh, the NATO summit to th uh, in June. Because at the same time, all 30 countries voted that Ukraine would become a NATO member. Lots of people kind of missed it because they said, well, mm -hmm. there's no timeline. The they reaffirmed They reaffirmed the Budapest Declaration. They reaffirmed the Bucharest, yeah. The problem is that uh, the problem is that, that they voted it now when there was already a war, when there was already a Putin saying these are red lines, when they're already having uh, Hungary against uh, France is kind of doesn't understand where it goes. Germany wasn't hesitant. Now all of them actually voted that, yes, Ukraine going to be become a, that was a, a huge signal for them that ukraine is actually uh going ahead and they needed to do something to stop that and they did it well as they thought they needed to do something like straight away we were warning uh in our comments back then we were saying putin is going to come up with something we need to be ready mm -hmm. so he came up with this now if i have a second i would also comment on whether this is a psyops or whether this is a real first of all i fully agree with vladimir you can't do a serious psyops if it doesn't look real. Right. So that's true. I think it's a he has a huge deal with psyops, because uh, what they want, they want uh, West to get scared, literally, like in simple words, and they want the West to go for negotiations, and that's the main reason of what they, particularly the United States. That's why all this uh, information about the buildup came uh, up uh, in information space of the United States more than anywhere else, including Ukraine, yeah. Europe, London, etc. They, 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 the most of information about the buildup was actually in U.S. information for that reason, because they wanted U.S. to make that decision. Now, 
Whether this is real or not, suggest we talk a bit later during this call, hopefully, because uh, we have some opinion about that. Yeah, we're going to talk about the hard military facts in the second but half. Yeah. Answer your question: Why he's doing that? Because he thinks he thinks that unless he does something, you, uh, the 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 page will be turned, and we will we will pass the point of no return with mm -hmm. Ukraine NATO integration and with Ukraine general westernization, and you know, and the train will be gone, as we say, you know, and that yeah. was it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and unfortunately, the only we just don't know whether this is a psyop or if this is real because the only person that knows that is Putin, we and have we can't a, get inside of Putin's head. We have set an opinion. We're publishing a piece like uh, tomorrow, I believe. Okay. We have something. Uh, we have a. We, we did. We did some calculations. We did some estimations. I can tell you if you like. Okay. Uh, yeah. But uh, but go ahead. I don't know. You have other questions probably. Or... Yeah. No. That's fine. That's fine. Because we're going to get into this in the second half. The hard. The yeah. hard military. Fact. I noticed below you, you're drinking from a uh, UT Austin uh, coffee mug. There. Um, we're going to have to get you a UT Arlington coffee mug. <laughs> because as we okay, all know, you, I'll be you, waiting. Are, you, are, you are a Fulbright at UT Austin. Um, right. I know you you focus closely on Ukrainian-American relationship, and I, and I wanted to get your sense of the, the Putin-Biden call um, and what, what your takeaways were from the Putin-Biden call. And do Ukrainians feel like they're getting enough support from the U.S. and from the West in general? What more would you like to see? What more could could, could, could your friends in the West be doing? Well, I'll start from the second part of your question. Uh, uh, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, a lot of Ukrainians are basically saying, no, Americans are not giving enough support. Uh, they should be doing more. Uh, for instance, people are pointing to the Budapest Memorandum. My personal position has always been that Americans have lived up to what they promised to do under Budapest Memorandum. Uh, and uh, you know what? Uh, this is uh, not uh, what uh, a lot of people think. Uh, but anyhow, uh, a lot of people think that probably we should have been seeing American troops here. That's not going to happen. And somehow, yeah. still, some people live under this illusion. Uh, and that brings me back to 2008 again, when uh, some people in the Georgian leadership actually still expected American yeah. landing quickly, uh, you know, to repel uh, Russian invasion, even though they've been told, uh, I mean, maybe a hundred times that they were told. Happened. They were told by Secretary of State Condoleezza told Rice in no uncertain terms. That that's not <laughs> going to happen. And still, they wanted and they probably expected this to happen. So anyhow, uh, and then, uh, but we got enough enough of support uh, and getting even now, as uh, Sullivan was speaking, Jake Sullivan, other day after the Biden-Putin call. Uh, that the help, the military assistance is coming right now as we speak. And uh, yes, the other day, I think the day before yesterday, mm. there was a big celebration of two uh, island class boats uh, coming to Odessa port. There was a band playing and the big, uh, you know, flash, flash, flashlights, floodlights, uh, you know, looking at the ships and people coming and taking pictures. So, and, and other things are happening, obviously. That's the uh, end of a plus additional 60 million support. That's in addition to what was given before that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that only, that's already a huge amount of money. That's not uh, uh, all what we're getting. Uh, the, the diplomatic support, uh, the, the, the financial support for the reform. Uh, we're getting a lot of it and a lot of people are appreciative. Uh, but also, I think that Putin probably tries uh, and tried and uh, he saw some opportunity with Biden. And he sensed some opportunity in the sense that uh, he knew that Biden would uh, take the bait and uh, try to de-escalate because Biden uh, has said many times that he believes in a personal dialogue, that all lines of communication should be open, mm. and he we should talk to anyone and, uh, and whoever, even to those people we strongly dislike. And he used it once in the spring, and he got the phone call and then meeting in Geneva, and he used it again. 
but between those two meetings, uh, Putin, uh, as uh, uh, Andrei described really well, his chronological uh, survey, uh, overview rather, uh, that uh, he wasn't, uh, he was disappointed Putin. Uh, he thought that maybe Biden will apply pressure on Ukraine earlier, and he didn't. And that's why he was probably disappointed. But uh, then in Ukraine, people uh, think that that was a good thing, that this conversation happened. Some people are upset that Ukraine wasn't present, but because there is this, uh, there is a slogan, there is this motto. On us, on us, yeah. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so not with, you know, if you talk about Ukraine's future and Ukraine's fate, uh, you should include Ukraine. But this conversation had to happen between Putin mm. and Biden. Putin wanted to, to talk to Biden, and that's what he got. Uh, our positions are closely aligned uh, and coordinated. I mean, Kiev and Washington talk all the time together. So we can we can actually say that you have Putin on one hand and U.S. and Ukraine on another. Well, yeah, he talked to Zelensky before position. he talked to Putin, right? And my I understanding mean, uh, is he had a phone call with Zelensky before he had a phone right, call with Putin. Right. So. To conclude on this, to conclude on this, some people are still uh, questioning whether Biden was uh, doing the right thing when he rushed to talk to to Putin, and some people in U.S. Are doing that. that oh, they I know. See as a sign of witness, you know, every time Putin escalates, Biden calls him and goes to meet him. A lot of people are critical of that. So there's a certain politicization of this issue as well on both sides of the Atlantic here in Ukraine and also in the US. But uh, most people think uh, nothing bad would come out of it, really. Yeah. If talk, I mean, I don't... fine. Sullivan says, or Biden says, we're going to discuss uh, the, the broader strategic security arrangement for Russia and what uh, worries Russia and what threats they see. So what's wrong with talking about that? Yeah, let's talk about that. Let them explain to all of us how they see that Ukraine and NATO are actually preparing an aggression against Russia. Right. Uh, only the good thing can come out of it because they don't have any any sensible argument. So let's talk about that. So I don't see any problem with that. I mean, uh, with a, with a, with a, with a NATO integration for Ukraine, uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon anyway. And Putin knows that too. So there's yeah, something he does. else. But I don't he's like the NATO idea of even moving, you know. I don't he's even like the idea of talking about it. Now he's talking that NATO shouldn't support Ukraine. So let alone talk about NATO yeah. membership for Ukraine. But yeah, I mean, yeah. see, I, I don't like talking about that's where you get into this Onas Biesnas situation, right? Where where you, you, the Putin Putin wants to have this uh like what I call the Russian American committee to run the world. Where, where Putin and whatever American president sit down and divide up the world. That's not how the 21st century world works. Putin's stuck in the 19th century in a lot of ways. But the, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not a full post to them talking. I just don't want Russia and America negotiating over Ukraine's sovereignty. And I, I'm always looking for signs of that. I saw no signs that Biden gave an inch in any of the readouts on this. Andre, you wanted to say something? Yeah. Uh... The, 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 here is this. Uh, so technically, Putin is not trying to talk uh, about Ukraine without Ukraine, because what he's saying is uh, what he's building up is very simple, is that if you want to become a member of NATO or any country, you need, you need to have a, an application of the country. So the country needs to want that and apply and so on. You need to have a headquarters uh, happy with this. You need to have a 30 countries consensus about that. Mm -hmm. So he's approaching a strongest and biggest uh, sponsor of NATO and the biggest uh, power and say, please take your policy that while your opinion, you will be asked about your opinion, you will be against that. Yeah. So, so essentially, he's talking like like Russia to, to obviously, obviously, um, you know, as soon as somebody concedes to Russia, so concessions to Russia is the only thing he, that per person gets is that uh, the red lines are immediately moved further. So that's uh, essentially what they do pretty much all the time. So if you if, if, if they're threatening someone and that someone uh, says, OK, but that's it. You know, I'll agree on that. But that's it. No, no further. No, no, no. 
they will move they will they will move on and they will say mm -hmm. now we don't want that so if technically hypothetically anybody says okay we're not going to vote for nato enlargement they would be unhappy without any collaboration with nato then they will be happy about any collaboration with with united states and ukraine and so on and so on because essentially it's not just nato they don't need in ukraine it's you it's it's they actually want the whole thing they want ukraine yeah. To be like Belarus number two, to um, and that's how what, what they dream about. Obviously, completely disregarding what people of Ukraine want, right? And and total with a total ignorance. Uh, and honestly speaking, it doesn't matter uh, if Ukrainian and Russians are uh, ethnically are very close or culturally very close. Yes, they are, because uh, because a whole big chunk of Ukraine was a part of Russia for like centuries. So true. I mean, we have lots of like, history, common history. We have uh, lots of people who speak common language. There, we watch common films and so on and so on. But it's not like what defines the sovereignty of right. the state. What defines sovereignty of the state is the fact that it's a sovereign for 30 years, recognized by the whole world, a member of the United Nations, and recognized by Russia as well for a long, long time. And so it has all benefits of the for for, for decades. It has all benefits of the sovereign state. Now, according to international law, you have to respect that. And so, so if, uh, if 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 you are trying to breach, and what Putin does with Donbass and with Crimea, and now with the threat of invasion, he breaches all international laws imaginable. And it, totally regardless whether people speak same language or they uh, have a common culture. So essentially, his article, which you mentioned in the beginning of the call, uh, is a manipulation because yeah. he he kind of substitutes the cultural similarities and uh, and a common history, uh, partial common history. With the fact that he disregards international law and uh, and our uh, our rights according and our rights of self-defense and all things related to sovereignty, so so that's what that's what the replacement of the of the of the sense. Right. You see, like uh, he tries to explain that uh, Ukraine is 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 close and Ukraine is similar, and that's why Moscow has to run it. No, 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 that absolutely is not the same. So it's uh, it's completely not the same, and we can be even have a same accent, but it's 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 totally different regarding which we don't. But anyway, right? It's, it's, uh, it it and we have a, our own language, and we have our own culture, but but which uh, is closer to Polish language than it is to the Russian language. Yeah, actually. And <laughs> from the international law, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Yeah, it's but irrelevant. I would argue, Andre, that he also Polish gets. State. Yeah. He also gets the cultural piece wrong because oh, Ukraine yeah. also spent centuries as part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, that doesn't I'm, mean Lithuania or Poland has claims yeah. on Ukraine. I mean, it's, 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 it's absolutely absurd. Yeah, there's so many manipulations in that article. Honestly, I mean, we have academic here, as far as I understand. We, yeah. we should be even bothering. <laughs> Quite a good one. Because it, it doesn't make any sense from a scientific perspective. I spoke to a few historians, and I myself you know, have a couple – car education. So you can't you can't read it without uh, tears, you know, or, or laughter or something, you know, because it's it has nothing to do with a proper uh, uh, proper you know proper piece of work. It's a manipulative uh, construct, uh, first of all uh, targeted to you to Russians, and explaining them why they should die for Putin's dreams and uh, why they should be suffering while he suddenly decides to invade Ukraine or something like that, which is. Not necessarily the case, but hopefully we'll get back to this uh, still on that call. Uh, regarding what, uh, will we actually start the invasion? It's a big, it's a big question, and yeah, let, let's save time for this, please. Okay, Volody, you had one last thing before we yeah. move into the second part. Yeah, all right. Yes, uh, you, you're bringing up this good question, so there is always a need for more time. Uh, two things: what Putin is doing as well, he's really good in messaging and signaling, and say signaling to Washington, but not just to Washington. 
but many other countries within NATO. He's intimidating not just Ukraine, he's trying to intimidate other NATO members who are really worried about, you know, this commitments to Ukraine security, uh, uh, the whole talk about Ukraine becoming a member and how we should fight in direct confrontation with Russia as well. So every time uh, he does it uh, with new, uh, you know, escalation or attempt of escalation, he's sending this message back off. That's our territory. And he's also sending signal to this to people who believe in this realpolitik view that, well, Ukraine is just doomed. It just happened to live in this dangerous neighborhood next to the big bear, dominating player. You know, if you listen to John Mirsheimer, Stephen Walt, others, you know, yeah. and other people like uh, the, the, here in Ukraine, there was uh, quite a lot of interest to the recent piece by uh, Sam Cherub, who's, who's a brilliant singer, great scholar, and I know him really well. But uh, he's, uh, you know, he's singing this tune for a number of years now. He believes in what should be done, that Ukraine should be conceding and, and, you, and, and Americans should be forcing Ukraine to concede to Russia. There is no other way. So uh, Putin is actually doubling down and, and betting on those yeah. views, you know, Europeans trembling, like little countries within NATO not wanting this conflict right. over Ukraine with Russia. And people everywhere in the West, there are plenty of those in Europe, and there are more and more in the US who are also mm -hmm. saying, oh, okay, okay, come on. Remember the Obama doctrine, about, uh, you know, interview article, uh, you know, when he was leaving uh, uh, in Atlantic Monthly, when he said, yes, we cannot do as much in Ukraine and with Ukraine as Russia can. Russia will always have an upper hand. You know, they're much stronger, they're much more invested. We, we can do a lot of things, but we can we cannot ultimately save Ukraine from Russia. That's basically what he said. You know, and that's that view is still there. It's still there in, in America. And that and Putin is trying to reinforce that view. Yeah, and I would argue that's wrong. And I would actually point out you brought up Sam Cherub's piece, and I I, I like I, I like Sam too. I disagree with him. Um, and I would point out that uh, former Assistant Secretary of State David Kramer and former Estonian mm. President Tumas Ilvis had in a, a very very strong rebuttal, also published in Politico, that everybody should read. Um, on that note, we probably should shift gears. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and discuss how prepared the Ukrainian armed forces are to resist a full scale Russian invasion. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the beautiful Ukrainian capital, Kiev, is the former Ukrainian defense minister, Andriy Zagorodnyuk, director of the Center for Defense Strategies. And joining me from joining us from the magical uh, Ukrainian city of Odessa is my old friend and colleague Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mirchikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So back in 2014, the Ukrainian armed forces surprised Russia and just about everybody else with their capacity to resist Moscow's aggression in eastern Ukraine. And the Ukrainian armed forces have only gotten better since then 
with better training and U.S. defense assistance, including Javelin anti-tank missiles. But the Russian armed forces have also upped their game over the past eight years. In remarks reported by the New York Times today, General Kirillo Budanov, the head of the Ukraine's military intelligence service, said the following, there are not sufficient military resources for repelling a full-scale attack by Russia if it begins without the support of Western forces. If the civilized world wants to avoid catastrophe, and this will be a catastrophe for everyone, we need military technical support now, not tomorrow, not the day after tomorrow, not in a year, now. Likewise, General Alexander Pavluk, the commander of the Joint Operation Forces fighting the separatists in the east, noted that Ukrainian has about half a million people with military experience. If the West does not come to Ukraine's aid, he said, we'll start a partisan war. A senior uh, unidentified senior Ukrainian military official told the Times that if all else failed, the military would simply open its weapon depots and, and allow Ukrainian citizens to take whatever they need to defend themselves and their families. Um, so that 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 kind of caught my attention over my morning coffee this morning. Um, specific, specifically, the uh, the remarks by by Pavluk. Andre, let's assume the worst: full scale Russian invasion. How capable are the Ukrainian armed forces to resist? And as a former defense minister, how should Ukraine be fighting this war? Should it be some combination of a conventional and a partisan war? Um, what would the ho- what, what would you hope for from the West realistically with the understanding that armed intervention by NATO is extremely unlikely, if not um, impossible? Uh, yes, we first of all hope can be a part of your strategy. Uh, it's one of the things which we learn very, uh, very quickly. So it's not about the hopes, it's about the calculations and it's about assessments of the capabilities and uh, uh, capabilities both of the regular forces, reserves and the possible uh, possible resistance. So here is the here is the blunt truth. The blunt truth is this. Yes, Ukraine, and I'll be very quick because, uh, you know, we can talk about this for a long time, you know, mm-hmm. but so I'll be I'll be saying like a bullet bullet points, you know, of the uh, message. So first of all, Yes, Ukrainian armed forces became way stronger than they than they used to be, uncomparably. So to compare uh, Ukrainian land forces with the uh, 2014, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's just a completely different different armies. Every single brigade, every single battalion has a battleship experience. So uh, there's like literally th- hundreds of thousands of people who have literally like a combat experience firsthand. Russia don't have that. They 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 have a, a quite. Uh, they have uh, quite a lot of officers who've been to Donbass and who went through Donbass. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, the Russian forces, if we, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands, they would need to uh, get to Ukraine. Uh, they don't have that experience uh, at all. So that's one thing which we need to take into account. However, there are capability gaps which are substantial between Russia and Ukraine, and we realize them, and they they would take resources to fill and years to fill, and Ukraine does not don't have these years, and unfortunately Ukraine yet doesn't have those resources, and we're talking about a very like like a expensive large ticket items such as tactical aviation, such as uh, um, air air defense such as uh, Navy. So I would I would point this to the top three because mm. that's that's literally it. Uh, and in this case, uh, with air defense and tactical aviation, obviously they can get super air supremacy like on day one. And uh, that can create a substantial damage to Ukrainian land forces. And yes, they can they can move quite along the way if they if they want like a, a scenario of full scale invasion. Honestly speaking, uh, I don't think they uh, I don't think they they should 
and I don't think it's reasonable for them to start the full scale invention. And I don't, and I think that if they're thinking reasonably, they will not do that. Uh, and I can explain why, but that's mm -hmm. enough. No, so, I'd be interested in why you say why, because that's that's interesting to me. Yeah. So, uh, so getting back to the what if they still do, because right. we obviously shouldn't be relaxed and thinking, okay, they're not going to do that. That's a huge mistake, and luckily Ukraine doesn't make that mistake so far. You know. So, um, so uh, if we do this, if we if we assume that like a worst case scenario. Worst case scenario uh, can be three three uh, 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 under scenarios in this and one. So they can go after a substantial chunk of territory, for example, Kharkiv, Mariupol, or Crimean channels, or I'm oh, sorry yes, to say, Odessa, for example, <laughs> and so on and so on. So so uh, in this case, armed forces of Ukraine are strong enough to create a, a, a really substantial resistance for that sort of concentrated, in the concentrated theater. And uh, and uh, that will be extremely difficult, and they will uh, they will not get any benefits out of this uh, invasion, uh, any any economical benefits, no political benefits. All these um, sanctions package, and we're talking about a lot of like uh, a lot of uh, losses and so on and so on. So basically, this scenario of the lo located like uh, local sort of invasions in some small, relatively small areas, it's not feasible. Right. So then there are two others. One, which is uh, we have seen in build, which honestly just reprinted the uh, map and made it more nicely written than Budanov, uh, right. uh, Ukrainian, yeah, you know, uh, Ukrainian, um, sorry, the, uh, military, the intelligence chief. military intelligence service published recently. They built, they just reprinted it. Uh, and that shows uh, them getting up to uh, up to Dnieper River. So it's essentially a thousand Ukraine and it's a, it's a, it's a left bank. And then there is a scenario that they take the whole thing. In both cases, in both cases, Ukrainian army will uh, most likely create a very substantial resistance. They will they will create a very substantial um, a very substantial damage to the Russian army. But if Russian army will uh, invest uh, all its capabilities, uh, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of troops, and we're talking about most of their battlefield-ready uh, mm -hmm. uh, units. Obviously, they can reach their goal, so they can uh, they can actually get uh, till the uh, uh, till Dnieper for sure. They can get to Kiev for sure. They can get to Odessa for sure, and so on. So they can actually, uh, at the end, they can. Uh, and I'm talking about without substantial uh, impact of the which the one which uh, you just uh, quoted from uh, New York Times that some countries step up and they kinda, they they fill the Ukraine with arms and so on and so on. So if we avoid that scenario, if we take it out of the bracket. Mm -hmm. Yes, in this case, uh, Russian forces can capture a very substantial part of Ukrainian territory. Can they the hold it, though? Can they the hold it? Problem, the big problem happens. What happens after? Uh, starts what happens after that? Because uh, first of all, while doing that, they will have lots of losses, uh, and the image of the—it's uh, not going to be a quick, victorious war, like you know, like that, like they were doing, and, and, and like they were doing in. Uh, Crimea or in Georgia or or they wanted to do it in Japan in 1905 and so on and so on so so that like a quick which didn't work out right obviously, and ended up very badly but so it's not going to be that sort of dream of the old historical Russian dream of the quick historical certainly not but uh, it would be it would be something which will end quite brutally for Ukraine but at the same time the big problem for Russia starts after they try to uh, try to hold uh, acquired territory. Because, in, because indeed, uh, the biggest power of Ukraine in this case would be the resistance. 
Because all the tactical, oh, sorry, all the strategic advantage which Russia has, like navy, aircraft, uh, uh, tactical aviation, strategic aviation, uh, anti, it has nothing to do with insurgency, and it mm -hmm. can't do anything with the, with the, with the, with the armed resistance. And there is like we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who could be armed and who have battleship, battlefield experience, plus lots of volunteers, plus lots of people, which is majority, vast majority of Ukrainians who simply don't want to live under Russia. They seen what happened in uh, Donetsk, Lugansk. They, they, they just, they're not, they, they don't want to quit speaking Russian language and right. uh, I don't know, read Russian books in Russian language. But they don't want to live under Putin's rule. As simple as that. Uh, and uh, they can be complaining about Ukrainian politics forever, uh, and uh, you know, against this president, against that president, but they don't want to live under Russian president. Yeah. And those people, to our estimations and calculations, is a vast majority. So, so um, keeping administra occupational administrations for that amount of territory and trying to actually hold it will be practically, to our opinion, again, it was calculated opinion, impossible for Russia. So they will have uh, an uh, almost impossible task of keeping those and uh, try to rebuild any economy there and so on and so on. So essentially based on, and, uh, and, and at the same time, they're going to be receiving all kinds of negativity from the West. Basically, because we are, we're seeing uh, huge investments lost in Ukraine. We're seeing a trade with with Europe lost in Ukraine. We see millions of refugees, like a potential, you know, mm. and so on. So Europe is definitely going to be very, very, uh, uh, de 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 like upset and and uh, and depressed and uh, and extremely concerned. And it's not even diplomatic concern. It's it's a tragedy for the whole Europe, which is going to start. So Europe will be uh, certainly punishing ever like Russia for that because they. The last thing after COVID invasion, uh, sorry, after COVID and after all that stuff, after all this problem, Europe wants it's a large war on its eastern uh, borders. Right. They they hate that. They 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 have yeah. they, they don't want to live in that situation. So they will be demotivating Russia as much as possible until until they stop. So now guess all that, and then uh, economy will stop existing. So Russia will Russia spends by the way uh, to our very accurate as as I believe estimations. Uh, about three, three to four billion a year to support LNR, DNR, so-called. Mm. So that's a that's a deficit of the budget, which they cover all the time. A lot of that is gets stolen, so it doesn't get actually people of LNR, DNR, or so-called again. But uh, but 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 they spend a lot of money. Guess what it would take to try to keep the territories of let's say left bank Ukraine, which they tried to acquire. It, it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, and so on and so on. So all that in. Uh, accumulated uh, assessment uh, should tell that unless Russia acts completely unreasonable, they they should not even think about starting that full invasion. Mm. Yeah, uh, no, if you're talking about left bank Ukraine, you're talking about occupying oh, Zaporizhia, Kharkiv, Mariupol, Odessa, Dnipro. These are going to be hostile territories for them. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, and again, just to imagine that scenario, we have seen uh, a hell in Donbass, where we've been talking about uh, a less than 5% of Ukrainian territory. Yes, they were uh, very populated, urbanized areas, still are, but we're talking about uh, 2 million uh, in internally displaced people just from that small, relatively small region. Uh, and imagine what's going to start on a, on a planet, on a, on a European scale, when we're talking about uh, left bank Ukraine, uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, an attempt to capture. 
And what sort of resistance? So uh, imagine all these uh, Russian soldiers who've never seen the war in their life. Uh, they just heard about that. Some of them been to Syria, but it's a fraction. It's a fraction of the armed forces they need to capture Ukraine. Some of them been to Donbass. It's again a fraction. Um, and uh, those guys are getting to Ukraine. They don't understand why. They don't understand what they're doing there. And they're seeing people who have no second thought about like burning them alive in their BMPs, mm. about, in their tanks, about shooting them, and so on and so on. And these people are dressed same way as they do. They're like, speaking the same language, so they cannot ever understand whether this is local or this is uh, uh, representative of um, occupational so-called administration and so on and so on. So, so essentially, this... Uh, uh, and you know the insurgency back from uh, Afghanistan days, back from uh, Afghanistan uh, uh, Soviet days, Afghanistan American days, U Iraq days, Vietnam days, and so on and so on. Insurgencies are almost extreme. I mean, extremely difficult to fight with. And we're talking about very demotivated, very motivated people from one side, and totally misunderstood people who don't understand what they're doing mm -hmm. there from the other side. So uh, then they're going to return dead at homes uh, in thousands. And uh, Russian people will stop liking Putin that much as they do mm -hmm. right now. So, honestly speaking, to our projections, and I'm, I know we're thinking too, too far, but not that much. Uh, unsuccessful campaign. Because, you see, with Russia, the biggest fear is stop looking strong. Because Russian old regime is built based on a strong man cult, you know, because that's something... Yeah, they cannot sacrifice that achievement. They, uh, Putin has a strongman sort of image right now. He's a strong, powerful guy with all these kind of attributes of that of that thing. Imagine when he stopped looking strong. Uh, he will immediately have a local domestic uh, opposition, uh, maybe within his uh, uh, current team, who will be trying to replace him and who will be trying to. So they will have a political crisis inside the country. They may lose the whole country. The whole, uh, the whole uh, their political status completely because uh, because because when the people see the thousands of bags and uh, coffins coming back, that's something you can't ignore. So they they barely avoided that through pretending they're not there, through hiding names of soldiers, through making unnamed graves, through paying to the uh, using the Wagner Group, <clears throat> uh, using the Wagner Group through paying to the parents of the uh, not to speak to press and so on and so on. And we're talking about a relatively small piece of Ukraine, which is like honestly nothing compared to what they're going to have in uh, in the case of the invasion. Let's say half. Now, and that's what I've heard on your Kaufman talk like uh, last yeah. week, that he was mainly talking about this uh, same, same projection of the left bank. Now, yeah. Ukrainian government is going to retreat in the right bank Ukrainian army is going to retreat in the right bank, use the resources of the right bank Ukraine, and basically create the hell for the occupiers of the of the left bank. So, to be honest with you, I mean, uh, it's very difficult to build a construct while this whole uh, campaign is successful. They can successfully start campaign uh, and move on quickly, like really, like using air superiority and so on and so on. They can quickly, they can quickly move on. Uh, and uh, but they but but how you imagine completion of that campaign successfully? That's a, that's that's very difficult if possible yeah. at all. So you're Sorry, a lot more. You're, no, that's your, that, that, no. You're you're one of the few people I'd want to hear that full that full that full readout from. You're obviously a lot more optimistic than General Budanov is. Um, one thing I would add to your comments, Andre, is that let's let's make a difference because because he was saying about uh what i'm ag agreeing with because they can move on and they can capture ukraine so uh he was saying about that right. and i agree that that but they really, can't hold it yeah question is yes 
whether they should do it or not, thinking about what, what they're going What's to gonna receive. What's going to happen next, right. And so the, other thing, the, the other thing and the other thing we have to consider is that if uh, one Russian troop moves one meter uh, across the Ukrainian border, that's going to kick off sanctions like we've never seen yeah. before. What I'm, yeah. The signals I'm getting here in Washington is we're talking about a swift ban. We're yeah. talking about banning Russian sovereign net debt, not just on primary markets, yeah. but on yeah. secondary markets as well. We're talking about ending Nord Stream 2. It appears that yes. the Germans are on board with that. Um, so we're yeah. basically talking about cutting Russia off entirely from the global financial system. And we also could be talking about enhanced NATO troop presence in, in on the eastern flank up to and including possibly American bases. So yeah, we're I, talking about all these things Putin does not want to happen. And that's all aside of the, the casualties that would be suffered in a partisan war. Brian, there is no single country except for Russia who's interested in this war. Nobody. Right. So people hate that, would hate that uh, that uh, situation. Europe would really suffer of this. Uh, U.S. will have like uh, something to have a big problem uh, constantly, and uh, and, uh, and and so on and so on. So so uh, the world, the Western world, and Russia, unlike Iran, unlike Syria, unlike uh, Myanmar, and so on. They dependent. Their economy is dependent on the yep. on the global economy. Yep. They are receiving money from the selling of oil and gas across the world, and so on and so on. Their their banking is integrated. Their debt is integrated, and so on and so on. So so you cannot uh, expect the world to hate you for that and still feed from the investments uh, from the global right. investment. So essentially, uh, we're going to see an an, an an attempt to demotivate them to to till the till the very end to do that. And yes, there would be a. Uh, quite substantial sanctions, which essentially can ruin uh, Russian economy. And as soon as Russian people will uh, will understand that their leader is not that strong as he pretended to be, uh, there's lots of dead people returning from Ukraine for for whatever reason. There's not much money anymore, and uh, and and so on and so on. They would be extremely unhappy, and you don't want to rule uh, Russia with the image of weak leader. Yeah, they don't respect that at all there, and. Uh, that will be the end. That's uh, that's my projection. Volodya, I want to bring you into the discussion here because you've been quiet for a while. Uh, what are you? What are your thoughts on this? Well, there's little I can add to this very uh, you know comprehensive description that Andre provided. Uh, uh, well, one uh, option for the military action that's been discussed by some experts that Russia would like to do the Georgian way, 2008. It's kind of a quick uh, raid, a quick punishment campaign, and going through territory. Uh, maybe sieging one or two major cities uh, for quickly and trying and hoping that the government will capitulate and will be ready to to go with uh, you know with some kind of big major concessions so basically hoping for that some kind of military punishment campaign uh, but uh, it might not happen too you know and then another thing that they've been discussed that they can use their air power and uh, you know, long-range artillery across the border, they can use that. But that's, of course, a no, not a full-scale invasion. That's a major escalation, but not a full-scale invasion, even if they do it along the border for many, many kilometers. Uh, what I'm afraid is that uh, they, they probably, as you said before, they probably believe some of their hype, you know, because earlier on, uh, you were always sensing that Putin is lying and he understands that he's lying, but he's putting some, some of those things uh, out there for public consumption hoping that people would, uh, you know, believe that. But now I'm not sure. Now when they actually say that, you know, we've been pressed and, and uh, outnumbered and they're getting to our borders and we're in danger and things like that, they probably believe some of that. 
mm-hmm. hype now, and that makes them dangerous because if they think they're cornered, you know, they can actually believe in what they're trying to do and thinking about it as some kind of a defensive war. So that, there is a certain danger there. But then uh, also with sanctions in Russia, uh, that's true, that would hurt them, but they also have huge financial resources after all. Uh, the number of, of their hard currency uh, reserves, I think, is 650 billion US mm-hmm. dollars, which is a big number. I mean, if, even if you think about SWIFT and other things, that would get them going for a while. Uh, but uh, yes, eventually they'll be hurt. Not indefinitely, yeah. No, that's the no, not, so it wouldn't it wouldn't last them too long. But uh, the high price, how how high is the price they're willing to pay? I'm afraid that Putin is really might be thinking that his ultimate final contribution to the Great Russia project could be subduing Ukraine by whatever it takes and whatever means it takes, and that makes him really really dangerous. But yes, is he rational or is he irrational? What's the correlation there? We don't know. We just don't know because it's a very Byzantine court there and we don't get much information from there. And there's a lot of uh, smoke screen as well uh, to, get, yeah. to try to get through. You know? And frankly, actually in Cold War times, there was this major field of criminology you know, and Sovietology. But now, yes, of course, there are experts like you, Brian, and others who try to see what Russia is doing. But uh, their ranks are depleted, frankly, even in terms of numbers. Yeah, and we're not in agreement that. on this. We're, yeah. we're, so those of us that kind of watch that, the Kremlin are not really... This, uh, of course, Andrei provided a great uh, full yeah. picture. A very dangerous assumption would be to relax and say, okay, he's not going to do that. That's yeah. bluffing. Very dangerous. So I'm not even going there, but certainly we shouldn't be thinking that way and underestimating the danger. So uh, then my whole description was based on one assumption. He's, they're making reasonable decisions or rational decisions. That's not necessarily going may, may be the case. And uh, that's another and that's another sort of uh, danger, because first of all, they don't understand actual their uh, limits of their power in terms of the military power, because they don't have a civilian independent oversight of the armed forces like Ukraine has and U- US has and so on. So they uh, they just have all this system reporting just to Vladimir Putin and knowing how mil- Soviet military people think, that means that their impression about their own army is much better than it actually is. So they may be illusioned about their capabilities. That's a big danger. Secondly, they, uh, they certainly, uh, all decisions made by literally so far one guy, and assumption that uh, we have a risk of a personal risk of, of that person start to think unreasonable. You know that person starts to to getting crazy about his uh, his right. ambitions and, and and so on and so on. And third one is that it's an interesting one, but nevertheless should say that that we should uh, understand that some people may want a crisis in Russia to get the power. Mm. Uh, Putin is not a young guy, and some of his uh, team people may be actually getting this to the uh, to the difficult times so they can they can somehow replace him there's a there's a hypothesis obviously we don't have any proof of that yeah i haven't seen any evidence of that but that's that's interesting that there are uh, cliques in his, within his team which are willing to play their own game that's what we know already anyway please Sorry. anyway Volodya, i wanted to go to you for the last word here and what i wanted to ask you is Listening to Andre kind of kind of map out very very comprehensively and competently this 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 military scenario that ends up with a partisan war, regardless of what the what the Russian objective is, whether we're talking left bank Ukraine or the whole thing, it, it ends up as a partisan war, and that is going to depend on the resolve of the Ukrainian people. How does that look to you? Do you think there is the resolve among the Ukrainian people? who, despite a war in the East, 
pretty much if you go to Kiev, you go to Odessa, you go to Lviv, you pretty much feel like you're in a European city, and it's it's pretty kind of kind of relaxed and, and you know uh, and, and fun. Are the Ukrainian people ready for this? Do you think that 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 there can be a sustained resistance from the Ukrainian people? Well, no one can be fully ready for the for the for the worst scenario, you know, full scale invasion. That's going to be really a tragedy and catastrophe. Uh, but uh, yes, there is a sizable segment of population. The majority, in fact, that would be fighting by what they have, you know, tooth and nail, uh, you know, uh, and uh, do what they can. Because uh, some might be fighting as a guerrilla fighters, another might just not be obeying the orders of the occupying administration, something like that. You can fight in different ways. And uh, I think Andre described that really well. But also, he just described interesting things, and I just figured that if he has time, I should actually invite him to talk to my students because I one of the things I actually like talking to them often is a misperception theory. Uh, that's what might uh, be getting mm-hmm. Putin getting. If he's thinking in, perhaps through the lens of someone who is a macho man, who is a strong man, and whose image is cultivated artificially, and no one ever dares to question him and bring mm-hmm. information that would contrast in his worldview, uh, in his surrounding. For like 20 plus years, mm-hmm. that makes him really living in his own world. Yeah. Like Angela Merkel said early on after 2014, he's another planet. He is on another planet. And that's what, what makes him really dangerous. And they also probably, as some experts said in recent days, they think that they have an upper hand even without the West. You know, with a hypersonic missile, you know, with shooting satellite from space and other things that they probably think that they are really outracing America uh, in many ways. So they're not afraid of them anymore. Even if Americans come to support Ukraine, we're not afraid of this American troops, I would say. So this kind of misperceptions are really dangerous and tricky. And I'm, and, and again, I know I'm, I'm kind of ringing alarm. I don't yeah. want to be, I don't want to be this. You're, you're, channel, you're channeling Robert, you're, you're channeling Robert trying, Jervis is what you're doing. Yeah, I'm trying to picture those uh, risks that we have with people who are running Moscow now. Yeah, no, you're reminding me of a book I used to assign to my students, Robert Jervis's uh, Perception and Misperception in International Politics, which which is a classic 1976 book. No, I I think you you may be right about that. Um, We'll be be watching this closely. We're bumping up against the end here, gentlemen. This has been a pleasure, but unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Kyiv has been former Ukrainian Defense Minister Andrei Zagorodnyuk, director of the Center for Defense Strategies. And joining us from Odessa has been my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor at the Faculty of International Relations at Mieszczykov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Thank you for the enjoyable and enlightening conversation, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Thank you for coming. I'd also like to to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties cleaning up my many messes and making all of us sound a whole lot better than we do in real life. 
I'd like to also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, and if you like us, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and re- review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.